If you have your Bible, please uh, turn with me to Galatians chapter 6. Galatians chapter 6. We are closing our study through the book of Galatians next week, and then we will kind of come back and do a series this summer on each of the fruit of the Spirit. But we will spend the next two weeks concluding Paul's letter to the Galatians. This morning I'm only going to read verses 1 through 5. And so you can follow along with me in your bulletin or it will be on the screen behind me. Or you could also grab a pew Bible in front of you. This is God's word. Brothers, if anyone is caught in, in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. This is God's word. Let me ask. God, to come through the Holy Spirit and to help us with this passage this morning. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we come this morning needing your help. We are helpless to understand your word unless your spirit takes it and makes it clear and applies it to our lives. We come here into this room in a room this size from lots of different places this morning. Some of us are struggling with our own failure and our own sin Uh, And we feel lots of shame. Others of us, uh, we feel really distant and dry spiritually. And we long to get back to where we once were. Some of us, Lord, are angry. We're angry that life hasn't turned out quite the way we wanted it to or the way we think it should. Others of us have never been better spiritually and are so excited about what you're doing uh, in our lives. Lord, would you remind us this morning that we are not here by accident, that you have brought us here, and you have brought us here because you have a good word for us this morning, and so use this passage and encourage us. Show us that we're a bigger mess than we realize, but at the very same time, we're more loved because of what Jesus has done, more loved than we could possibly imagine. We ask these things in Christ's name, amen. Uh, One of the most unusual men in church history was a man by the name of Simeon Stylite. He was the first of one of the so-called desert fathers. And in around uh, the year 423, he did something really crazy. He took a telephone pole of sorts, a, a wooden pole, and he took it out into the Syrian desert. And he put it in the ground and he climbed up on top of this pole and lived there for the next six years. Many people, visitors, would visit him uh, because they thought he had lost his mind. But he would explain to them that he was just simply trying to be spiritual. Because this is what spiritual people do. You move outside of the city, you withdraw from relationships, and you commune with God in solitude, and you move away from these worldly distractions. And in his mind, living on top of a pole was a way that he could be truly spiritual and consecrate himself wholly to God. 
And as strange as that might sound, the life of Simeon Stylite raises a very important question for us this morning. And it is this question. What does it mean to be spiritual? What does it mean to be truly spiritual? That's a great question. And we have our own answers for that. Oftentimes we think in our context and in our culture, someone who is really spiritual is someone who has a lot of discipline. They are really disciplined when it comes to the spiritual disciplines of the Christian life. Or they have a real emotional experience in worship or they worship in a particular way. See, for Simeon Stylite, it was being spiritual meant moving out from the city to the desert and it wasn't by remaining on the ground. It was by living off the ground. And we have our own ways this morning. And the Apostle Paul in Galatians chapter 6 shows us that Simeon Stylite has totally missed it. Because being spiritual means that you move towards people. You you move towards relationships, not away from them. And we see this in verse 2. I think this is important for us to kind of lay the groundwork here. Because in the ESV it says, you who are spiritual... And so we look at a verse like this, and lots of people have looked at this verse and said, okay, you who are spiritual, this is the Christian special forces. These are for the Christian Marines. That's who Paul is talking about here in this verse. But no, remember where we have been. Chapter 5, fill in everything from chapter 5 last week. The context is important. Paul is talking about you who are spiritual means you who are filled with the Spirit. And if you are a Christian this morning, you have been filled with the Spirit. You have the Holy Spirit inside of you. That's why I think the NIV does much better in its translation. It says, you who live by the Spirit. And I think this is important because if you remember at the end of chapter 5, Paul is contrasting life in the Spirit and the works of the flesh. And we talked about this last week. He says, this is what it looks like, and he used very general terms, what it looks like to walk by the Spirit or to live by the Spirit. Or we would say today, someone who is filled with the Spirit. Well, in chapter 6, Paul is continuing that conversation. Except now he gets very, very specific, not general, about what it looks like to be filled with the Spirit. And he says, someone who is filled with the Spirit moves right into the heart of community. They move right into the heart of relationships, and it makes total sense, because if you remember when Paul was talking about the works of the flesh, eight of the 15 works of the flesh were relational sins. Relationships to the Apostle Paul is a really, really big deal. And so this morning, here's the question we're going to look at. What does it look like when the Holy Spirit is at work in your life? What are some signs that he's at work? Another question would be, what does it look like for the Holy Spirit to be at work in our community or in the life of a church? And we see here that if the Holy Spirit is at work in our midst and in your life, your relationships will be marked by two things. Number one, humble confrontation. And secondly, the second point we're going to look at this morning Your relationships will be marked by compassionate burden-bearing. 
Let's look at these two this morning. Number one, humble confrontation. Look at verse one. We could really spend the rest of the the morning on verse one because it is jam-packed with things that have to do with our relationships. I'll read from the NIV. Brothers and sisters, if anyone is caught in sin. So let me stop there and just state the obvious. I know it's obvious, but I think it needs to be said. Brothers and sisters, and so Paul is talking to Christians. If anyone is caught in sin, real Christians get caught in real sin. Very clear. Then he goes on and he says, You who live by the Spirit, or as the ESV says, You who are spiritual, should restore the person gently. Keep watch on yourself, or you also may be tempted. Again, lots here, and let's start working through some of these and see how it applies to our relationships and what it tells us about humble confrontation. And the first thing I think we learn here is when to confront. And before we get into when to confront, let me just say this. What this does not mean is that God's people have a license to be the sin police. It does not mean that God's people have a license to be sin hunters, where we can go around looking for everyone who's in sin or pointing out, seeing someone who has a slight weakness, and then we jump on them and pounce on them in the name of being spiritual. That's not what Paul is saying here. This passage is not saying that because you've got to remember Scripture interprets Scripture. And we see in other passages, remember 1 Peter chapter 4, Peter says a love covers a multitude of sin. In other words, there are overlookable offenses. There are things that love overlooks in one another. He says it another way in 1 Corinthians 13, that famous love passage where Paul says love is patient. Love is kind. Love keeps no record of wrongs. It's long-suffering. It endures all things. And so the emphasis, when we talk about this restoring people caught in sin, the emphasis of the Bible is on patience with people. Jesus says it this way. Why do you know that, notice the speck of sawdust in your brother or sister's eye, yet ignore the plank or the think about one of these beams yet ignore the plank or the beam in your own eye and so what does that teach us well it teaches us very clearly our most aggressive sin policing is should be reserved for who me it should be reserved for yourself but Paul very clearly says there is a time to confront someone And he says when that time is, it's when a person is caught in sin. What does that mean? Well, think about this uh, example of being trapped. Think of an animal who is trapped and cannot get out. They are caught. And so someone, if we translate that over, who is caught in sin has been overtaken by sin. It's a pattern in their lives. Sin has gotten the upper hand. And not only has sin gotten the upper hand, But they don't know that sin has gotten the upper hand because often they're blind to it. If you are struggling this morning and you're aware of your sin and you're mourning it and you're repenting of it and you're praying about it, you're not caught. You see that? You see the difference? Paul is saying that walking by the Spirit means that we love people enough in our community to move towards them 
those who are caught in sin and not shame them, not tell them to get their act together, but to move towards and restore them. But again, this verse, it's so loaded. How are we to restore them? Well, Paul tells us gently we are to restore them. And one of the things that I learned this week that I'd never noticed before that was amazing to me, the word restore means set into joint. The word restore means to set into joint. And so the picture is that something's dislocated and restore means someone comes along and helps them put their life, so to speak, back into joint. And I think this is so instructive. Let me try to set a picture for you to kind of help give you a picture of what it might look like in relationship. And let's take this idea of dislocation. I grew up in Kentucky. Kentucky means basketball, not football. Um, And so I grew up a huge basketball fan, and I played my entire life. And if you've played basketball for very long, and you're in and around the basketball, and you're always using your hands... That means lots of jammed fingers and dislocations from time to time. And I remember very specifically one game, the ball came down on my finger uh, in just the wrong way, and it wasn't a normal dislocation. Normally, they kind of go back in on their own, or you just a little tug, and it goes back in, and no problem. This time, it did not happen that way, (laughs) and my finger was a mangled mess. Back then, that makes it sound like I'm really owed, but I'm... (laughs) But we didn't have we didn't have like today. You have doctors on the sidelines and all these official trainers. Well, we had student trainers that didn't know a thing about the human body, and they didn't know a thing about what a finger is supposed to look like back in joint and how to do it. And so it would not go back in. And so after the game, my coach said, "You need to don't ride the bus. You ride home with your parents and you go get that looked at." And so we went to one of these emergency minor emergency places. And um, the doctor, I had a real doctor that looked at my finger. He knew how the body was designed and what my hand was supposed to look like. And so he could look at my finger and hand and say, that doesn't look right. That joint is not supposed to be there. It's supposed to be here. And you, you stop and think a second about the Bible. The Bible shows us what it looks like for us to be fully human. It shows you how a human being is supposed to function. That's the purpose of the Ten Commandments. And so it helps us, as we know and study our Bibles, to be able to look at a person and say, they look dislocated. Something is not right about their humanity, and this is how I need to help them get back into joint. That's the way the doctor was doing with me with my hand. But the doctor was also looking at me and giving me great hope. Because the doctor, uh, as he was looking at my finger, he didn't look at me and say, well, too bad, sorry, find someone else to help you. No, he entered in with me. And I remember it very vividly with, very, uh, with lots of gentleness. He actually took my hand and put it out away from me and he turned his back to me so that I couldn't see what he was doing and, and I couldn't see my hand. And he started talking me through. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to count to three. And he was telling me, you know, this is what I'm going to do with this and that. And I remember very vividly one thing he said. He said, this is going to hurt worse, what I'm about to do, than the actual dislocation. 
But isn't that true when we go and restore someone that's caught in sin? Isn't that true? We need to look at someone and with great gentleness say, I'm going to be here every step of the way. This is going to be painful. It's going to hurt worse possibly than the dislocation, but it's going to be a healing pain. It's going to be something that's going to heal you. I will be here with you every step of the way. I will not leave you. I will be with you. You see, that's what it looks like. See, the picture of walking with someone who is caught in sin. And it's, it, it, it's very interesting because when we look at that, we see very obviously that's going to take a lot of boldness. But you know what else it's going to take when we look at this passage? It's going to take a lot of humility as well. And that's a big focus in this passage. Look at verses 2 and 3. Watch yourself, or you also may be tempted. Verse 3, if anyone thinks he's something when he's nothing, then he deceives himself. Think about verse 2. Watch yourself, or you may also be tempted. A lot of people have taken this verse and say, well, if you see someone and they're called in sexual sin or greed or anger, you better watch yourself or you're going to fall into those same sins. I think Paul uh, is saying something, uh, he's saying more than that. Paul is saying here that it's going to be tempting for you when you approach someone caught in sin to forget who you are. And here's what I mean. It's going to be tempting when you approach someone who is caught in sin for you to think you're better than that person. That's the human heart, friends. It's going to be tempted, tempting for you to feel superior to them. As I was studying this week, a commentary reminded me of this story. It's a famous story. It's a true story about Muhammad Ali, and many of you have probably are familiar with this story. But during the prime of his career, he was traveling on an airplane and the stewardess was getting the cabin ready for takeoff and said, uh, you know, everybody needs to buckle your seatbelt and get prepare for takeoff. And Muhammad Ali said, Superman don't need no seatbelt. And the stewardess, without missing a beat, said, well, Superman don't need no airplane. <laughs> Buckle up. We're like that, aren't we? We think we're Superman. We think we're invincible and we think way too highly of ourselves and we enter into relationships and this is what Paul is pressing on and we think we're something. And Paul says we're nothing. And when we enter into relationships, we need to know our heart all too well. Mark chapter 7, go read it this afternoon. The, uh, that's, where, that's Jesus speaking there, but the Apostle Paul is saying here, when we enter into restoring someone caught in sin, we need to remember who we are and that the seeds of every sin reside deep in our heart and given just the right circumstances, at the right time, in the right opportunity, those things will manifest themselves in our lives if it's not for the grace of God. You want to kill your relationships and the relationships in this church? Go to someone that is caught in sin and give off this vibe. And it's often an unspoken vibe. But give off the vibe of, I would never do what you've done. I can't believe you would do such a thing to your family. You give off that vibe, it will kill the relationships in this church. That's why the Apostle Paul says, keep watch. Keep watch on yourself. You're not Superman. You're not invincible. 
and you're a human being who still has a sinful nature that God is rooting out, and he will one day root it out completely, but given the right situation and circumstances, you are, doing, you are capable of doing everything that you see in the world and everything you see in another person that possibly you are confronting. In my quest. That's what the Bible teaches about man and woman and humanity. And my question is, do you believe that? You see, walking in the Spirit allows you to move into relationships with humble boldness. If you're filled with the Spirit, the Spirit produces humility and boldness at the very same time. How so? Well, the Gospel, think about the Gospel. The Gospel allows you to move into relationships with boldness because your identity is not in what other people think of you. Your identity is not in uh, the approval of other people, but your identity is in Jesus, and that gives you a courage and a boldness to step into your relationships and to confront and to have courage to say hard things. But at the very same time, you move in with humility. Why do you move in with humility? Because nothing less than the death of the Son of God, Jesus himself, could save you. You know what that means? That brings you to your knees and you cry out, have mercy on me, a sinner. It brings you to your knees and you say, if it's not for the grace of God, it's for the grace of God that I am what I am. And you realize how gracious and merciful God and patient that God has been with you in the midst of your sin. Or to say it another way, you move into relationships realizing that you too are dislocated and need to be put back into joint. See how the gospel affects us moving into our relationships with humble boldness and humble confrontation. Secondly, compassion, burden bearing. Look at verse 2. It says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Now look at verse 5. I'm not going to spend a ton of time here, but then he says, each must carry his own load. That should sound funny to you. It sounds like a contradiction. Which is it, Paul? Carry my own load or bear one another's burdens? Well, very simply, there's two different words. So Paul is using two different words, so he means two totally different things. In verse 5, carry your own load means it's the word for backpack. Carry your own backpack. It's, it's yours. It's your backpack. It's your assignment. It's your calling. No one can carry it for you because God has uniquely called you to do it and given it to you. Let me give you a quick example. No one can be the father to my daughters but me. God has called me and given them to me to love and care for. It's my backpack. It's my calling. It's my load to carry. Let's move on. Look at verse 2. We could say more about that, but we're going to move on to verse 2. Because this is where I want to spend the rest of our time. Verse 2 is a further working out of chapter 5, verses 13 and 14. Remember Paul said, Christian freedom... Use your Christian freedom not to indulge the flesh, but to love and serve one another, to love your neighbor as yourself. Well, here in verse 2, the Apostle Paul is getting really, really specific about what it looks like to love and serve one another. And he uses the word burdens, verse 2. And the word burdens is is the word that means, it's, it's used to describe something that you can't possibly carry on your own. 
And so think of it this way. Think of a, a, a single person who has something really heavy on their back, so much so that it's weighing them, them down and they cannot hold it up, and it's just driving them straight down into the ground to where it'll, it will eventually collapse on them. Okay? So to carry one another's burdens then means you come alongside that person, you put your arm around them, and you stand up under that weight with them, and you push up and you say, I got you. We're in this together. You, care, you, stand, with, you stand with them in the midst of that burden. And look at this passage again, and again, to state the obvious, but I think those are sometimes the things we miss. He's saying here, carry one another's burdens, just like I said, caught in sin. He's talking to Christians. He's talking here, not to people in general, but to the church. And so what's the assumption? That Christians carry some really heavy burdens. That's the assumption. You see, we have burdens that we carry that are very external, that people can look at us and see that we're burdened. But we also have internal burdens that we are carrying. And I would say oftentimes the burdens that people cannot see are the worst, aren't they? And so what are the burdens that you have carried into this room this morning? What are the burdens that you've carried into this room this morning? We have burdens that are very external that we can look and see. We see someone who is physically burdened. Or we see someone who has cancer or has a disease or a sickness or an aging and an ailing body. We also have burdens that we carry this morning that no one can see because we carry them on the inside. And friends, as I was thinking about this message this week, I just started listing burdens. And I could have filled up three pages and we could fill up the rest of our time talking about burdens, and it's hard to know where to even start. Because maybe this morning, for you, it's loss. Maybe you have lost someone really close to you. And it could have been years ago, but it seems like yesterday, because there is not a day that doesn't go by that you don't think about it. That's a burden that you're carrying. Or maybe it's loneliness. Maybe you get up every morning and you have your to-do list and you're plowing through the to-do list. And you're getting things done and you're loving and serving other people and you're running meals to everyone that you know and you're serving them. And then you stop and think and you're surrounded by people. And then you stop for half a second and think and you think, no one really knows me. No one really knows what it's like to be me. And truth be told, I'm surrounded by people and I have lots of acquaintances, but I'm really lonely on the inside and dying for someone to know me and love me all the way to the bottom. It's a burden. Your own sin and addiction. Remember David, King David, from our study in the fall, he committed adultery. He plotted the death of Bathsheba, her her husband. Psalm 38, listen to what he says. For my iniquities have gone over my head like a heavy burden. They are too much for me. Was David forgiven? Absolutely. 
Was David restored? Absolutely. But David, every single day, was carrying a burden of what he had done. What he had done to his family. What he had done to the people in his kingdom. And some of you this morning are carrying things in this room, and you have blown it, and you have failed, and you still, you know you're forgiven. You know Jesus loves you. But you carry that burden of your family, and how it's affected your family, and how it's affected you, and people in your relationships. Maybe it's infertility. You would give anything for another child. Or for one child. And you have prayed and you have prayed and you have prayed. And it seems like the, the prayers just bounce off the ceiling. And you're wondering if God really does care for you. You're wondering if anyone is home when you pray. Or maybe it's young children and you don't have family around. They're hours away. And so it's you and your young children. And you're dying and struggling to keep your head above water. Most days, that's a burden. Unemployment. You don't have work and you have no idea how you're going to make ends meet at the end of the month. That's a burden. Work pressure. You're in a job where if you don't produce, then you're gone. And you don't have a job. That is a burden. That is pressure. Something that you're always carrying with you. And so my question for you. We could name a hundred more. In Galatians chapter 6. Paul says do you know this about each other? Do you know people are carrying these things with them. As they walk throughout their life. And into this room. And what would it look like for you to enter in. And come up under them. And to help them carry that burden so that they don't have to carry it alone. Another question. Is how do we view burdens in our community? How do we view burdens at Faith Church? Are they viewed as abnormal? Are are burdens viewed as simply, simply bumps along the way in the normal course of life? Is the attitude towards burdens that people carry... Man, they just need to toughen up. They're so whiny. Friends, if that is the way, if we view, view um, uh, burdens as abnormal or bumps along the way, then people who have burdens will keep them contained inside of them and they will feel like outsiders in our midst. And the Apostle Paul says, no, that burdens are a normal part of life. They're a normal part of life in a broken, fallen world. And that no one is expected to bear their burdens alone. And to be even more specific, Paul says, if it's not happening, then the Spirit is not here at work in our midst. You know, we have this southern saying, I'm so sorry to what? Burden you. We should never apologize for such a thing. You were made to carry one another's burdens. Some of you might be thinking, wait a minute, Jason, hold on. You've just listed all these burdens, and I feel all these burdens inside of me, and and it's too much for me to carry. And now you're telling me the Apostle Paul, the Bible, saying i got to go pick up someone else's burdens. (laughs) And i got to carry those too. And you might be saying, Jason, I need some good news. 
That doesn't sound like good news. Well, let me give you some good news. Let me at least try. You remember the poem Footprints? It's an old poem. It's been around for as long as I can remember. And if you remember the story, it, it, it looks back over a person's life and this man's life. And it's, the picture of his life is a beach. And uh, he sees his life and he sees at times where there's two sets of footprints. And there are, there are times in his life that there, he sees only one. And the times when there's one set of footprints, they correspond for some of the toughest and hardest times in his life. And so he starts to think, well, God, you left me. You left me all alone in the midst of my burdens and when things were the hardest and toughest. And you remember the, the poem, the Lord looks at him and says, no, 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 my child, that's when I carried you. You know, we put it on our walls. And we, it's, nice, it's a nice thought. And it's sweet. But here's my question, is that biblical? Is that biblical? Because it sounds like good news, but if you really think about it, I'm not so sure. Because I think the good news is way better than footprints. Let me try to explain. Look at Isaiah, 50, uh, Isaiah 46. You don't have to turn there. It's in the first few verses. You can look later. But in Isaiah 46, let me read this, and you tell me whether footprints in the sand is biblical or not. Listen to me, O house of Jacob, all the remnant of the house of Israel, who have been born by me from before your birth. Okay? So, God's saying, I created you. Before you were even born, I knew you. Then he says, carried from the womb, even to your old age, I am he. And to gray hairs, I will carry you. I will carry you, I made you, I will bear with you, and I will save you. Did you hear what, do you hear what that's saying? Let me translate it for you. It's saying this, God comes and says, I created you, I carried you from the time before you were even born, and I carried you from your birth till you get gray hair and die. From beginning to end, I carried you. And so here's the point. There's always, there's only been one set of footprints in your life, never two. From beginning to end, God is carrying you. Until you get gray hair, God is with you. He will never let you go. And so the verse mentioned gray hairs, and so let me speak to those with gray hairs for a minute. Let me speak to those this morning that are aging and getting older. I want you to know that I know growing older is very, very difficult. And it's scary. My parents are growing older and coming at the end of their life. And I'm walking through that with them. And it's not easy. And it sometimes feels burdensome to you. And feels hard. And you feel very afraid because you feel like your mind is slipping. You feel like you can't remember things the way you used to remember things. Or you forget things that you used not to forget. And your body's not as strong as your body used to be. And it, when you get sick, it takes longer for you to recover and to heal. And maybe this morning you're saying, what's going to happen to me? Maybe you're asking, what's going to happen to me? Maybe you say, Jason... Uh, 
Alzheimer's. What if I forget God? Or what if I say some really nasty, mean things to God? Or what if I say some really and treat people who I really love and I've been with my whole life, what if I treat them really poorly and say some nasty, mean things to, to them and I don't want to say them, but my mind is going and I can't help it? God is going to carry you to the end of your life, even down to your gray hairs. And he is never going to let you go. And maybe this morning you're thinking, Jason, that sounds really good. How do I know that God's going to care for me to the end? How do I know he's going to carry my burdens to the end? How can I be sure? Here's how you can be sure. Because God sent his one and only son into the world. And he's on the cross. Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so God the Father forsook his only son so that he would never forsake you. So that he would never forget you. And on the cross, Jesus bore more burden, the burden of our sin and death that you and I could even possibly think of bearing. And so I don't know why it is that you're going through what you're going through. But I know one thing it can't be. It can't be because God doesn't love you. It can't be that. It can't be because God doesn't care for you. Because if God did not spare his one and only son, how will he not also graciously give you all things? Why would God do such a thing, give his only son? Because he loves you and cares for you. 1 Peter 5, 7, cast all your anxieties and burdens on him. Why? Because he loves and cares for you. My prayer for our church and for my own life is that we would be so filled with the Holy Spirit. We would walk by the Spirit, as Paul's saying. And that we would love people enough to confront them when they're caught in sin with great gentleness. But we would also love people enough to get up under their load and to carry their burdens with them. Let's pray and ask God to help us with that. Father, we need your help this morning. These things don't come naturally to us. We are so preoccupied oftentimes with our own burdens and we find them overwhelming. We need your strength and we need your power to help us get outside of ourselves and to help us to move towards other people. Help us to remember this morning all that you have done for us in our lives. How you've bore our burdens so that we can go bear one another's burdens. Help us with these things. In Jesus' name, amen.